top of the morning. It's really cool. I don't know what prompted that, but thank you. All right. So, and was this yours? Did you leave this? It's your wrapper from your, your breakfast bar, man. All right. So, gee, man, neat. All right. Why don't you uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 18. So, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 18, and I am going to pray as you are flipping your way there. Jesus, I thank you for grace. I thank you for that gift, that power, that potency that we are going to discuss today in a very unique context. And I pray that we will embrace what it means to be ambassadors of this grace. It is very easy for us as Christians to want to receive grace. It's very easy for us to appreciate the grace that has come into our lives that forgives us of our offenses and and then bestows on us a righteousness that is from you. But sometimes it's very hard to live that grace in a graceless environment. It's hard to be ambassadors of grace in the face of those who don't appreciate grace or don't understand that grace or are frankly not interested in that grace, or don't respond in gracious kind, and yet we're still called to be those ambassadors and to exhibit that grace. So I pray more than anything this morning is that we don't simply appreciate grace, but that we will dispense grace. That is the lesson we have to learn today, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will sink that into us, because again, it's hard, it's hard because it requires Discipline. It's hard because it requires selflessness. It's hard because to dispense grace means we need to go to war with our own inclinations to fight back, to resist, to not be kind, to uh, look out for ourselves more than your interests. And so all the more, I, I pray that you will teach us the eternal value of being a people of grace. So work that out in us and show us in your good name. Amen. The gospel. It's a word we we talk about a lot as a church. I bring this word up often in preaching because it is a word that is uh, saturated in the pages of the Bible. The gospel is the reality that we, from the moment of conception, from the moments of our first breath, our first noises, our first impulses, all of those things point to a reality of a condition of the soul which is rebellion. Sin. It seeks to do our own thing and go our own way and serve our own interests. I mean, that's the, that's the problem of the human condition. And then God who made us and sees that condition does something that is radically gracious. And he says, I will take responsibility for their condition, and I will become both judged and judge for them. I will take their sin. I will take their offense. I will suffer the penalty for that offense on the cross. I will both impose wrath for sin and receive wrath for sin to rescue them. That is the gospel. Jesus then dies under the wrath of God, is buried three days later, rises to prove, to justify all that he has done for us. 
And as we are brought into new life with Him, our sins are truly forgiven because they are eradicated through the cross of Christ. And in that, we have new life in Jesus. That is this word, the gospel. Now, I say that because sometimes we throw it around so much that it's like, well, what exactly is the gospel? So I want to be clear as I start this morning, the gospel is that message. And ready? That message changes everything. It is the kernel, the seed of all global transformation. Nothing else will change the world but the gospel. Nothing. We can't put our hope in a leader. We can't put our hope in a system. We can't put our hope in eradicating those who oppose our system. That is not where our hope lies. That is just kind of shuffling pieces on the deck. It's not, it's not where hope lies. The gospel changes everything. And so I start with that because I want us to understand then how that kind of trickles down into our topic today. Um, because the gospel changes everything, what we first realize about the gospel is that it is a message that is proclaimed. We state it. It is something that is uh, clear. It's, it's, it's a message spoken. right? So that's why I started by speaking the message. It's proclamational. And it's supposed to be said. From there, when those who receive that proclamation are changed by it, it becomes both private and public in its display of power. Right? Because what flows out of the gospel are virtues. Not just merely values, virtues. And here's the difference. A value, because we talk about family values, or we talk about cultural values, or Christian values. I think that shoots too low, because a value is the thing that we say is valuable. And unfortunately, we live in a world that easily will take something today and call it valuable, and tomorrow will say it has no value. So we probably shouldn't call what we believe values. It's really virtues. They're transcendent. They exist for all time, all places, under all conditions. It doesn't change. That's a, that's a virtue. And so the proclamational message of the gospel then translates into virtues in our life that are both private and public. We live them out in our affairs, in our world around us, and in privacy, we're also to live out those same virtues, right? So it's proclamational, it's private and public, and from that it's practical, which means the Bible speaks to a lot of environments in which those virtues are played out by way of the gospel that has changed us. Right? So when you think about when the early church preached the gospel, they did it in the streets, they did it in the civic centers, they did it in the marketplace, and part of the reason they did is because they were saying, this message changes the civic center, this message changes the marketplace, this message changes the streets. And so it's practical. And in this section of 1 Peter, Peter begins to outline a lot of the practical because he's already highlighted the virtues that flow out of the gospel. Right? So he's just helping us along in this. And last week when we were together, we noted that we were called by God to conduct ourselves in our social lives in certain ways. We're supposed to ensure that we're not being guided by our own lusts and passions and impulses that war against our soul, but rather we are to be guided by the virtues of the gospel in such a way that in culture at large, we honor all people. 
And uniquely in relationship to government, we honor the king, we submit ourselves to authorities, we're doing all of those things. This is the practical outplay of the virtues that flow out of the gospel. Right? So, so I want us to understand how all of that interlinks. And I say that because even in the passage this morning, Peter's going to quickly move from a very practical topic and he's going to rifle us right back up to what motivates us in the practical. It's going to be the cross. It's going to be Christ. It's going to be the gospel. The example of that, the power of that, the model of that, the potency of that. He's going to take us right back to that. And so I outline all of that so we understand exactly where we're going today. And you will find I probably get pretty passionate at times about that. Woo, I haven't even had my caffeine this morning, all right? So, but I do, and, and I do because I'm certain if there's anything you're probably noticing throughout the series, this is just personal testimony for a second. If you're noticing anything in the series, you're, you're hearing out of me a conviction of certainty about the path. It's because I'm certain. Not because I think I'm smart or right. I think the Holy Spirit guided Peter to give us a practical, principled, proclamational template of how to live in a world that increasingly says, not interested, don't want it, shut up, you're too stuck up, you're too judgmental, you're too arrogant, you're too narrow, you think you know everything. That world imposes. And we need to learn how to show grace and conviction in that environment. And that's key, grace and conviction. Just conviction is easy. Sometimes just grace is easy. But conviction and grace in humility, that, that can be a more challenging thing. And so Peter is giving us a map. So, finally, 1 Peter chapter 2. Starts in verse 18 with the word servants. Right? So this is his practical outplay. He's dealt with kind of us in general to culture, us in general to government, and now he's dealing with another group, the servants or the slaves. He's talking to anybody that is in that particular social class. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second because we, we need to pause. Because as soon as we as 21st century Americans read servant or slave, we instantly load the word because we live in a culture that has a history of slavery. Right? So we know, we think about you know, the Civil War, we think about uh, the Civil Rights Movement, we think about the tensions that we're all born out of, we think about the sins that were related to slavery, and when we run across this word in the Bible, we instantly take our history and apply it inside that word. Right? And, and, and so we already are, are going to handle the text a little bit awkwardly if we do that. So I, I want to explain to you how slavery in the Roman Empire was different than slavery in the United States. All right, because this is going to help shape some things. So, um, unlike our history, uh, the slavery of Rome was very different. First of all, it was not racially driven. You, you could be black, you could be white, you could be anything in between and be a slave. It wasn't a racially motivated thing. There wasn't this race is superior to that race, and therefore we're going to enslave this race against that race. That's not how it worked. The second thing about this we have to understand is that the Roman Empire, about one-third to almost one-half of the entire populace was in this category. Right? So it was very large, but within that, the mass majority of those people, they sold themselves into the slavery. In other words, it was like they said, I'm going to sign a contract that says, for seven years, I will be your servant. And you will either 
buy off my debt, you will pay me directly, you will give me shelter and food and all of these things, and I will serve you for the duration of the contract. And then at the end of the contract, you're free. If you came into more money before the end of your contract and you wanted to buy yourself out of the remainder, you could do that. And then once you were a free person, you were free. And there wasn't a stigma attached to you that says, well, once you've been a slave, you can't be anything else. If you read the book of Acts, there's uh, one of the leaders, his name is Felix, Roman leader, was once a slave, and now he's a governor. Right? So it's not like you're stereotyped. While you were in this servanthood, you could own property, you had a certain level of independence, but what was true is that you were also the property of your master during that contract. Which is no different than if you ever played uh, organized high school sports, and for that season, first day, the coach says, you know what, for the next three months, I own you. You don't go, whoa, now I'm a slave. But you get what it is. They get to kind of call the shots. Right? And, and Roman slavery was much like that. Now, with that, some owners were, or masters is really the word more often used, uh, weren't always kind. Some were kind, everything else. But this is the way the system worked, which was very different than the, the system of our culture that we have broken away from. So I, I say all that so you have a context to Paul's words, or, or Peter's words, or anybody's words on the topic. And part of that is because what I hear sometimes from people, as soon as they come across servants or slaves in the Bible, is they go, ah, this is where the Bible got it wrong. Right? They'll say, why didn't the Bible just condemn slavery? Slavery's wrong, why doesn't it just condemn it? Why didn't the apostles roll onto the scene and say, we're going to deal with the social injustices of the world, and the very first one is slavery. Stop it. Well, part of that is, again, applying our own model of slavery as opposed to understanding their model of slavery, because their model of slavery was Again, much more contracted, much more occupational. In fact, one of the things we don't even realize is here's some people that were slaves. Ready? Um, teachers, shipbuilders, designers, physicians. Right? So a doctor was a slave. Right? Teacher was a slave. Tutors were slaves. Uh, all kinds of blue collar things were slaves. And if the apostles would have said, this is a social injustice, end it today. One-third to one-half of the Roman population are suddenly jobless. Jobless. Right? It would be crime. It would be homelessness. It would be all of these things because this is a part of how the economic structure works. It would be no different than I would venture that most of us in this room are actually in bondage to a form of servanthood right now or slavery. If you have a mortgage, if you're making a car payment, if you have credit card debts, welcome to slavery. Right? You're enslaved. Right? You're not in control of your financial destiny right now. You are at the mercy of another person that has the power to leverage themselves in such a way that makes your life difficult. Right? Th th that's what you are. So imagine if Congress tomorrow said, you know what, there are so many Americans in bondage to debt. We are going to pass a law. It's going to go effective on Friday that all debts are eradicated this week. You're like, sweet. I love it. I love it. All debts are eradicated. My home is paid for. My car is paid for. Student loans that I plan on keeping past my death. Um, they, they are gone. All credit card debt is gone. All debt is gone. Right? We would say, what a wonderful action until the following week. Because if we just eradicated everybody's debts in a week, you know what? That doesn't have a, a consequence, or it has a consequence. It may be unintended that's built right in, which is somebody's got to pay somewhere up the line. Right? And the people with 
the most to create the infrastructure are the ones that suffer the most, and from that, then everybody suffers below them. Everybody. Right? So we go, it's a gracious act. It would free everybody in a week, right? But it would ultimately destroy an entire culture economically and from that socially. So, you know, you have to kind of put this stuff in perspective a little bit. Now, with that, I would add another thing, which is the Bible doesn't get slavery wrong. I, I want you to actually turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Part of this is even, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, a little bit of an apologetics issue right now. Uh, you may not be familiar with the concept of apologetics, but it means to make a defense of the faith. Right? Or, or to articulate what we believe in the face of those who may be more of a critic. And I, I use that because what we'll hear sometimes, especially right now, is there's debates in, within our society about things. People will say, well, if the Bible got slavery wrong, it may get these other things wrong too. So they kind of link that. Slavery becomes the argument against the Bible. The Bible missed it here, and therefore it may be missing it on other things that we want to say are inappropriate or wrong. Well, here's where I would argue that the Bible does not get slavery wrong. Paul is dealing with uh, a young pastor in Ephesus. His name's Timothy. There's people that have come into the church that are trying to get all Christians to abide by the Old Testament law, and that's the only way you're going to really be a true Christian. So you've got to stop eating bacon, and you've got to go ahead and take a knife to your private parts. I mean, just like all these rules that they want to apply. And Paul says, man, they don't understand the purpose of the law. The law is not so you can do it to please God. The law is to say we need God because we can't do it. Right? And so he then says, here's what the law is good for. Verse 9. He says, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their father or mother, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What's an enslaver? I have a great footnote down here. It says, one who takes someone captive in order to sell him into slavery. So what does the Bible say about those who take one captive in order to sell them into slavery? The Bible condemns it. Here's what's more fascinating. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. You don't understand the law, he says. The law says this. So in other words, when people say, well, the New Testament might say it, but the Old Testament, Paul's quoting the law. He's saying the Old Testament didn't endorse that. The New Testament doesn't endorse that. Slavery says that idea of enslaving a person against their will is wrong, and it needs the gospel. So if you ever hear somebody say, well, the Bible got slavery wrong, say, you know, the Bible condemns taking another person against their will and throwing them into slavery. It says it. It says it right there in 1 Timothy, and it's quoting the Old Testament, which means both Testaments affirm this idea. So that's wrong. That's sin, right? Now, underneath that, though, Paul is living in a culture where many people weren't forcibly thrown into slavery. He's living in a culture where many people signed the contract. Like, sure, I'll sign that student loan. Sure, I'll buy that car. Sure, I'll buy that house, and I'll pay you back over 30 years or five years or student loans eternity, right? So, um, all right, I'll pay you back. These are people signing the contract, saying I'm, I'm, I'm willfully choosing to get into this. Under that, those who willfully choose the contract to work for somebody to, again, become engaged in this relationship, Paul says for the Christians, well, there is a way to interact. And to the masters, he says in Colossians 4.1, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. 
knowing that you also have a master who is in heaven. He says, don't treat them like property, treat them like people. Don't treat them like they're just a tool. Treat them like they're a human being and treat them with respect. So not only does the Bible condemn stealing a person out of their environment and forcing them into slavery, it also says to those who sign a contract on this, who agree to a relationship of servant and master, hey, masters, treat them with dignity. Treat them with respect. Treat them like a person. Don't, don't treat them just like a tool. That's why then in Second Peter, when he talks to servants... As Christians, he says, and you have a different relationship to the masters. Masters are to be fair and just and all those kinds of things. But to those of us who may be in a servant relationship, and I would actually say probably most of us are in a servant-type relationship, unless you are the CEO of your company, right? You're in a servant relationship. Unless you're independently wealthy, you have to go to work tomorrow, right? So you're already bound to this. If you're a student, you have to go to school tomorrow. You're bound in a relationship of authority over you. And so from that, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, right? This is that command to us. And, and, and he's saying this it, it, it just real briefly, but it's important, right? Subject. It's a word that means willfully put yourself under rank. It doesn't say obey. It's not the strongest word of obey. What he's saying is make a conscious decision to submit yourself to those who have authority over you. If it's a boss, if it's a teacher, if it's a manager, whatever, if it's somebody commanding you in the military, whatever it is, you go, I willfully choose this role of submission. And I do so with all respect. See, what's important to understand here is if we say, no, I'm going to take a stand, I'm going to pick a fight. Well, th then we just get into this uh, struggle for control. If we say, no, I'm going to choose to take an even bolder stand, which is the stand of submission, here's what you get out of that. Influence. You get influence, right? I, I think about employers uh, that say, you know, my favorite employees are the ones that really are looking out for the company. I've never met somebody who says, I got this employee, they're super opinionated, totally stiff-necked, they're my favorite. Never met a teacher that says, I got this student, doesn't do their homework, does their own things, totally challenging me, student of the year, you know? Um, that, that doesn't happen that way, Right? See, when, when we say, no, I'm going to give my all. I'm going to put myself in submission to this. I'm going to make the investment that gives you influence, right? The, the word meek in the Bible, we sometimes go, oh, man, meek is for wussies. You know the word meek simply means strength channeled. It just means strength channeled. We use it of what it means to break a stallion. You're channeling their strength for their optimal capacity. Same thing with us. When we choose a meek position, it's not that we're being weak. We're taking our strength, we're submitting it to what God wants, and with that, we gain greater influence. We have more of a listening ear with those in power. And so he's saying, I want you to do this here. And see, I look at us and I go, man, this is important, especially because most of us, one-third of our daily lives are lived in the context of being basically a servant. Whether you're going to work or you're volunteering in something or you're a student in school, one-third of our daily existence is on that mission field. And these are the tools in which we operate on that mission field. And I want you to notice as Peter goes on what, what he's really getting at here. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
Like, oh, you don't know my boss, though. There wasn't an HR in federal laws. Person would be Satan, right? And you're right. Thank you for HR and federal laws with satanic bosses. All right, so, but he says, whether they're just or unjust, this is what we do. It's not about whether the boss is worthy, the teacher is worthy, the coordinator is worthy, the officer is worthy. It's not about the worthiness of that. It is a worthiness connected to our mission in Christ. Yes, they may not be worthy, but Christ is worthy. And he's so worthy, I will do what he asks me to do, even if it's difficult. That is the calling that is here. Right? And, and so that is what is sought. In fact, I think about this in Titus chapter 2. Paul is writing to another young pastor there on Crete, and he's saying, here's how you need to instruct the different people, and he gets to the bond servants or the slaves, and he says in verse 9 of Titus chapter 2, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. What does that mean? Well, it means they're to be well-pleasing and not argumentative and not pilfering and showing all good faith. Why? To make a good impression? You know, Paul says to make a gospel impact, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Right? So when I opened up at the beginning and I said, um, you live practically the virtues of private and public that flow out of the proclamation of the gospel, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's not just, hey, be a good employee for good employee's sake. It's be a good employee for the sake of them seeing something in you that highlights, adorns, is an accessory to the gospel that you hold. Right? That, that's the motivation. And I love what Paul does immediately after this in Titus. No sooner does he say, you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, then he reminds us of that doctrine. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, be zealous for this. Right? So again, you're adorning grace when you act like grace in a world that may be graceless. Right? That, that's, that's his heart here. It's in Titus 2. It's in 1 Peter 2. It's the same thing. That's why he says in verse 19 of 1 Peter 2, for this is a gracious thing. Right? When you do it this way, this highlights grace. It points to grace. It shows that your life has been absorbed by the transformational power of this grace. So, boy, it is a gracious thing. He says, when you are mindful of God that one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, what credit is if uh, when you sin, you are beaten for it, that you endure. This is whatever. But if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Here is a painful truth for us sometimes. Our testimony is at its best when our life is at its worst. Our testimony is at its best when our life is at its worst. When somebody mistreats us and mishandles us and nobody's playing by the rules and you keep playing by the rules and you keep showing grace and you keep showing fidelity and you keep showing uh, your virtues and your faith. Right? When you are doing it right and others are doing it wrong and you don't succumb to doing it wrong to get back but you keep doing it right, that, that is a backdrop in which your faith 
shines. This is what Peter is getting at, right? That's why we live the way we do, right? Now, is this easy? No. I I look at Peter's words here. He says it's suffering. And, And notice that. He says, yes, it's suffering, yes, it's unjust, and yes, it's sorrowful. So I'm I'm not coming up here and saying, come on, everybody, let's just high-five it and call it happy. When we suffer for doing right, when we're mistreated in our world, I'm not saying it's no big deal. I am saying it's suffering. I am saying it's sorrowful. I am saying it's unjust because Peter says that. It is those things. Again, we're not debating what it is. What we're talking about is how we respond. The response is the key. And I think it's hard. I find in my own life it's hard because what I want to do so often is react. I want to react more than I want to respond, right? Give me a fight. That's clean. That's clear. That's simple for me. It's reactive even. Let me start rambling on about my rights and my rules and my well-being. That's an easy thing to do. And because so often words fall out of my mouth before I think about them, boy, if I don't stop and think and go, what does God call me to do? It's usually going to be the opposite of what God wants me to do. Right? And so, again, God in his grace is calling us to be people of grace who respond, not react. Who resist their impulses, which is why Peter earlier in this chapter even said, don't give in to your lusts. Some of those lusts are just retaliatory. Some of those lusts are defensive without thoughtfulness. He says, I don't need you to react. I don't need you to be driven by impulse. I need you to be intentional and driven by response. And so if we do something wrong at school, at work, in whatever environment, if we do something wrong, then we, we take the blame for that. We take ownership of it with grace. And if we're wronged and we didn't do anything wrong, then we take that as an opportunity for grace. Because this is how we are called to endure. We're called to endure in this grace. And to do it, Peter says you need to be mindful of God. You need to be aware that you are always before the sight of God. And in that, you then receive the strength of God. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us a reminder here. He says in verse 9, well, actually, you want to start actually in verse 5. I'm going to go there. So he's giving an encouragement of how do we live the Christian life. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, right? He had full authority. He's the master of masters, king of kings, lord of lords. This is his status, right? Uh, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or slave. And it says, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in other words, what it says, all right, here, here's the mind we're to have as servants in this world. Uh, have the mind of Jesus who came into this world and made himself the ultimate slave. Right? When Jesus was arrested, he could have said, oh, do you know who I am? Angels. Boom. Right? Could have done it. He could have protested, he could have fight, he could have reviled, he could have threatened, he could have said, oh man, when I come back one day, I'm coming back. 
Woo! You think you think Schwarzenegger was scary in the Terminator? Hmm. I'll be back, right? Like, like he could have done that, but he doesn't do that, right? He takes a very different model. He says, "I will be the slave of all." And so Paul says, "Man, have that mind. Have that mind." He says in verse fourteen, in this, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing." that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, ready, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This comes back to why are we doing this? Are we doing it because it's fair? No. Are we doing it because it's easy? No. Are we doing it because there's no suffering? No, there's suffering. It's unjust. It's unfair. You're going to struggle is what he's saying, but you do it because that is the way you are light. That is how you are straight in a world that is crooked. Right? That's, that's the principle in this. It's where our greatest impact lies, is what he's saying. And what's greatest is he's given what we need to do at verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only now, but even in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, exercise this faith. Right? Part of exercising faith is, again, the willingness to do what we're talking about today when it's hard. But then he says something in verse 13 that's really helpful. He says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it isn't like, all right, man, I just got to grab the bootstraps, strip them tight. I've got to bite down on leather and take the pain. He says, no, no, no. There's a very different model in this. Uh, It's God who works in you both to will and to act. Now, the, the key to embracing that power and sensing that power is the mind of Christ. If I'm not going to have the mind of Christ, I'm not going to be a servant, I'm going to be a fighter, I'm not going to be pushed around, I'm going to do the pushing when somebody starts it with me. If we do that, then we're going to limit what it means to experience God doing it in you. Because for God to do it in us means we yield ourselves to God doing this in us by saying, yes, God, your way is better than my way. It's hard way, but your way is better than my way. Right? That, that, that's That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. And so I go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm reminded of how this really all rolls together. Verse 21, the beginning of it. All of this, he says, to this you have been called. You go, I don't like this. I know. It's what we're called to. I have no doubt a soldier doesn't like to go to war. But it's what they're called to. I have no doubt that tomorrow some of you won't like to go to work or go to school. It's what you're called to. And, and so in this sense, ultimately as Christians, he, he says, man, it, it's, it is hard, but it's what we're called to. Specifically here, we're called to submit to those who have authority over us. But then also, kind of generally, he's saying we're called to suffer in grace. This is part of the context of his whole argument here. This is what we are about In fact, it's realizing that we have been called by God out of the world, right? That's what Christians are. God lays a call in their life. They're called out of the world. And then here's what he does. Now I'm calling you in that calling to go back into the world and call out to others. And and, and, and part of doing that then is doing it in ways that really prove grace, that really display grace, that really show grace, that cause you to get above the atmosphere of, of, 
of the tensions of this world by living transcendently and saying God is bigger than the tensions. God is bigger than the suffering. God is bigger than the unjustness. And I'm not going to get pulled into that. I'm going to live in that transcendent place where God is bigger than. He says to this, you're called. And we do so with endurance, right? Now, I think part of what this means for us is, is being reminded of some things. Because I, I and I, you got to understand, through a lot of the series, I, I've been wrestling with First Peter now for several months, and it's been very much a uh, Matt versus First Peter, right? Like, like, and I'll, I'll be candid. I was just desperate. I was desperate. Like, all right, God, I, I need some stuff to start sinking together here. And so, um, you know, it's like First Peter became just this battering ram to my life. And, and, and it was reminding me of things that I, I'm like, oh, that's right. I don't want to do that. Oh, come on, man. I, you know, and there's been that whole thing. And, and one of the things that really came out as I kept rolling over this section and these ideas um, is that God was saying, you keep forgetting something important. As you want to go to battle, as you're frustrated at the world around you, as you're getting, for no better term, a little pissy with it, right? You're forgetting something really important. And, and, and he hammered me. I was going to referred to this passage last week, and instead I figured out a way to force it in today. Um, but I, I think it's applicable. Titus chapter 3. No sooner do you talk about servants, adorning the, 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 the doctrines of our God, and then he highlights the importance of grace. He immediately goes into the next section, immediately. And so he says, remind them, servants, everybody, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This goes back to even the topic of last week. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Ow. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. What? That's so fun. To be gentle. To show perfect uh, uh, courtesy toward all people. Right? Let me just ruin your day. If we sin in these ways, if we are not kind to all people are showing courtesy, if we're not good in every work, if we're quarreling, if we like to speak evil, if we don't want to submit, you know what? We're sinning against God, we're sinning against our neighbors, we're sinning against the whole thing. Because this is what we're called to. Now, here's what I love about what Paul does. He, you know, again, um, he's, he's grounding it in, in something for us. He says, here's why you do all these things. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You go, why should I be good to bad people? Why should I be nice to idiots? Because you were an idiot. Because I was an idiot. I mean, how quickly we forget who we were. How quickly we forget that sometimes it's still who we are. If we start giving in to verses 1 and 2, doing the opposite thereof, we're speaking evil of other people, we're doing all these things, we're no better than. Right? So he's grounding in something really clear. Here's what I want you to do. Why? Because you were once this very thing. But then he goes into verse 4. It says, You were hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. 
He says he saved us, not because of works done by his unrighteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's what I love about this. What he says is, we were living life, our heads down in the smog of sin. And it wasn't like one day we're like, wow, the smog stinks. Sin stinks. People of sin stink. No, what we were saying is, they stink, they can go to hell, but I'm awesome, right? Like, we were down in the smog. And it wasn't like one day we're like, you know what? I'm sick of smog. I'm going to pop my head up. (gasps) The fresh air of wisdom, I found it. He says, no, man, when you were down in the mire, God jammed his arm down in the smog and jacked you out. God saved you. You, it says. You didn't pull your head out of whatever orifice you pick, right? It was firmly planted, and God saved you. And this is Paul's point, right? Here's why you conduct yourself in the world the way you do, because you were once just like that world too, and God saved you in his grace, not in your wisdom, not in your self-awareness, not in your realization that I'm sick of this, He says, God saved you. In other words, you were verse 3 and God verse 5'd you. Right? (laughs) Just say that to yourself. I was verse 3 and God threw down a verse 5'd me. Right? Because that's what it was. And so this is why we do what we do. Yes, we endure hostility because we were once hostile. Right? And so we become ambassadors of the very things that change that hostility. Right? And this is why he roots it again in the gospel. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Right? Why should I have to suffer? Peter says, because Christ suffered for you. He says, no, here's why. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You go, how much do I have to be willing to suffer? How much do I have to be willing to lay down my life? How much do I have to play by the rules? It's real simple. There's only one example I'm going to give you. His name's Jesus. Right? You just go, okay, whatever Jesus did, there's the standard. And that's Peter's point. And I think that's so critical because, again, the kingdom is not like the world. It's not like the world, right? You think about Jesus' message. He says, all right, here's the kingdom. It's so weird. Death is life. Foolishness is wisdom. Greatest is least. First It's really about being last. It's very different, right? And so what he's saying here is that the only way that we are going to conquer wrong and bring right is to suffer for wrong in a way that is right. Right? Because we think, no, no, no. We can end suffering by just bringing short-term suffering to people to end the long-term suffering. And he says, no, that's not really how it works. The, the way it works is you, you suffer with endurance, and that is what will right the world. You go, no, that's not how it works. But if we go back and we look at the early church, the early church suffered wrong in a spirit that was right. Right? So they were imprisoned. They were, um, uh, they were, they were killed. They were tortured. I mean, we go back to Nero. Nero, the guy that was emperor when Peter's writing, was the first Roman emperor to bring a full persecution of Christians. He used to light his garden by strapping Christians to big wooden poles, dipping them in oil, and lighting them on fire. This is how he lit his garden. I'm like, 
I hope you had some potpourri around the joint because that is not a good smelling garden burning bodies, but it was entertaining for him. Right? So, bad dude, Christians were facing bad things, and you know what they did? They suffered wrong doing it right. They showed grace when it was graceless. They endured when it was even hard to endure, and they suffered unjustly. But you know what was fascinating? This unlikely band of people, these 11 knuckleheads, right, deployed by Jesus. Twelfth guy enters in later. Then this other dude that was killing the church and hated Christians, Jesus radically converts that dude. That guy goes preaching too. Um, Within 300 years, the empire that hated Christians became an empire that defined itself by Christians. Right? Because they shed their blood, because they took the pain, because they didn't respond with hate for hate, violence for violence, they did it very different. And we might be skeptical, skeptical of that, saying, no, 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 but we've even seen other parallels of that. Right? Martin Luther King, who didn't choose violence to make his point. Gandhi, who didn't choose violence to make his point. I'm not trying to defend or fully clarify all the things even with Gandhi. I'm just saying that there is this thing where we see in our world that sometimes people use something super counterintuitive and it changes things. Or it isn't force and might. It's something different, which is a self-resolve and a sense of self-control um, that says, I will endure from my principles even if I have to suffer to do that. Jesus did it. He saves the world by way of this. It's the example in which we follow, right? The early church used this. It was the example in which they follow. And we do this because Jesus is worth it. Not because everybody in our world we feel is worth it or the conditions are worth it. We go, but Jesus is worth it. And I, in gratitude, do what I, he calls me to do because, again, I love him enough to do this, right? It says in verse 22, Here's our example still. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Right? There, there, there's the real, real key in all of this, right? So when we're reviled, we don't revile. When we're wronged, we don't wrong. But what do we do? We entrust ourselves to God. We keep saying to ourselves, you know what? Um, God's got this. God's got this. Yeah, but you don't understand. Look how much pressure there is. Yes, God's got this. Last time I checked, he's still on the throne. He still owns the earth. He's got this. Well, does he have it enough for my own personal life where I'm feeling this personal suffering? Yes, he's got this. But you don't know what's going on in my own personal world. You don't understand my situations. I don't, but he does, and he's got this. I guarantee you, you don't know all my personal situations, all the burdens that I might have to face. But you know what? He's got those too. He's got this. As Jesus is suffering, as Jesus is prepared to go to the cross, he's saying, God's got this. See, part of this is we don't even have the authority to dole out retribution anyway. As soon as we start reviling for reviling and attacking for attacking, we've gone beyond the ground of the authority that God has given to us as Christians at least. Maybe in your occupation you have a responsibility for law enforcement or other things. That's an authority you're given by the authorities that we're called to submit to. But as Christians, as individuals, we don't have the authority to dull out vengeance and wrath and reviling and judgment, and that's not our calling. But we are called to dole out grace. Love, compassion, mercy, those kinds of things. And that we do it by pressing in to God. 
And we do it in gratitude because, again, look at verse 24. Why would we suffer? Why would we not threaten? Why would we not revile? Why would we continue to endure in this? Because he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Why? Why should I do any of this? And Peter says, because Jesus gave himself for you. And it's what he asks. Just look at that. He himself. The holy, honorable, just judge who is Jesus. He himself, who was sinless, said, I'm going to take every single one of Matt's sins. And oh, Matt's got a lot. He's got a lot. He's got private sins. He's got public sins. He's got attitude sins. He's got affection sins. He's got action sins. He's got sins he doesn't even know about. He's got sins that he knows about and he doesn't care to deal with. He's got sins that he's not sure if they're sin or not sin. He's got all of that, and I will take it. And every bit of hell that Matt has earned for all eternity, for every one of those sins, I will take that hell for him. That's what the cross is all about. So I will suffer in his place, in his stead. Though I am God and I am sinless, I will take sin as God. And I will take it. Notice it says here, on the tree. Here's something I think sometimes Christians probably don't always realize or overlook. Uh, in the Old Testament, if, uh, if you had some sins, they were uh, uh, corporal in nature for the punishment. Right? So you might have to, you know, you killed your buddy's cows. So you're like, oh, and I got to buy the dude a cow plus a half a cow or whatever. You know, like, like, it's just kind of a, a corporal response. Other sins were so heinous, it was a capital offense. And if it was a capital offense, you stoned the offender to death because the offense was capital. But there were some offenses so wretched, so cursed, so wrong, so deserving of absolute punishment, you hung them on a tree. The tree was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst. So when we see that Jesus was on the tree, anybody that was skilled in the Old Testament knew, oh, he was a cursed thing. Because our sins are a cursed thing. And he took our sins as the cursed one. And he did it not just to forgive us. Notice what it says there. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might do it different. Not just be like, sweet, I'm forgiven. Let's go party. It's not sweet. I'm, I'm forgiven. So let's, let's go endure. Let's go do it different. Let's show gratitude and be ambassadors of grace to the one that has shown us grace, even when we weren't seeking it. That's the heart. What I love about what Peter's doing here is he is borrowing heavily from Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, there is this whole text. Now I'm going to go fast here. That there's whole, this whole text about what the crucifixion was going to be all about. And so in Isaiah 53, it starts in verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with this, by his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears, he was silent and he opened not his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief when he makes an offering for guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He says he shall divide the spoils with the strong because he himself poured out his soul to death. The God who was judge was judged on behalf of us even when we didn't want him. Even when we didn't want him. Look at our plight in verse 6. It says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. See, Jesus does all of this when we didn't care. It's not like we turn to him and then, we, then he does it all for us. He did it all for us when we had our back against him. When we were going our own way and doing our own thing, it says, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right, so when we were in rebellion, he did this for us. I read a great quote this week. And it says this. To put it bluntly and plainly, If Christ is not my substitute, I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. If my sins and my guilt are not transferred to him, if he did not take them upon himself, then surely they still remain with me. If he did not deal with my sin, I must face the consequences. If my penalty was not born in him, it still hangs over me. And yet, propitiation points us to the removal of divine wrath and Christ has done this by bearing the wrath for us it was our sin which drew it down and it was Jesus who bore it was there a price to be paid he paid it was there a victory to be won he won it was there a penalty to be born he bore it was there a judgment to be faced he faced it he faced it for us So why do I bother to do all of these things? Because while I was going my own way, Christ took the offense of my way on himself for me. This is why I love how Peter wraps up in verse 25. It tethers to Isaiah 53, that verse we were just looking at. He says, for we were straying like sheep, but now, but now, have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Why do we do all of this? Because we have a senior pastor who is Jesus who has paved the way for all of it, calls us to all of it, empowers us to all of it. And he doesn't say, I want you to lead Christian lives. He says something very different. He says, I want you to submit Christian lives. I want you to submit Christian lives. And so my closing encouragement is live it like he'll reward it live it like he'll reward it let's pray together Jesus you are asking us to swallow some challenging practical pills rooted in transcendent virtues based in your sacrificial gospel And I pray that we will embrace these things for the bigger picture. In the here and the now and in the small pockets, it's very challenging at times to do that. and Challenging to be consistent. It really does mean that we're always having to look to you to 
to, to realize we're before the face of God, to rely on your strength, to not be neutral in how we develop spiritually, but in your word, in prayer, consciously making decisions, seeing the bigger picture, loving your calling. Uh, it's what it requires of us. And I, pray that we would do that. I pray that we would not be casual in our faith. I pray that we would not be um, circumstantial or when it's convenient, but we would see the deep pleasure and joy that comes from full obedience to you. That this rewards, it doesn't punish. That we sense you more, not less when we do this. And from that, we experience pleasures forevermore. I, I pray that you will do that in us. I thank you for, again, what you've taught, what you continue to share.